It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. In 1193 CE, Henry II of Champagne, King of Jerusalem, traveled to meet Rashid al-Din Sinan, the leader of the Order of Assassins in Syria. For nearly 30 years, Sinan and his assassins had spread fear throughout the Holy Land. But when the Christian Crusades reached Sinan's doorstep, he invited Henry to the assassin's fortress to broker peace. Henry knew that he was walking into a pit of snakes. Although he was heavily guarded, one of Sinan's assassins could be lurking anywhere, ready to strike from the shadows. The men that Henry could see watched from atop the castle's towers. Sinan invited Henry to sit, then nodded to two of his assassins. Suddenly, they threw themselves off the towers and plunged to their deaths. It was a message. The Christian king's army may have outnumbered the order, but Sinan had something that Henry didn't. Complete devotion. And a society full of men who would die for it. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second of two episodes on the Order of Assassins. For nearly 200 years, the society of elite killers terrorized Persia and the Holy Land. They murdered at the behest of their leaders in an effort to create unrest and paranoia amongst their enemies. They followed a new branch of Islam, Nizari Ismaili Shiism. Last week, we examined the origin story of the Order of Assassins and its founder, Hassan Isabah. With a mysterious, devoted following, Hassan and the Order dedicated themselves to entering the eternal garden of paradise through the gateway of murder. To start, they set out to quell the Seljuks, a Sunni Turk empire which rose to power in Persia. This week, we'll explore the Order's struggle to maintain influence in Persia, how their most radical leader brought fear to the Holy Land, and the Order's sudden downfall at the hands of an unlikely force from the east, the Mongols. We'll also investigate the mysteries they left in their wake. In 1124, Hassan Isabah, the founder of the Order of Assassins, was struck down by an unknown illness. And for the first time in 35 years, the Order of Assassins had new leadership. 
The next few leaders weren't able to inspire a devoted following, or Fidai, the way that Hassani Sabah had. For 14 years, the order toppled on the verge of a downfall. And then, in 1138, Grand Master Muhammad came into power. Muhammad was extremely conservative in his attempts to expand the reach of the order. Under his rule, there were no major reforms or military campaigns. Many of the Fadai found Muhammad's lack of enthusiasm troublesome. The order's purpose was to expand and spread their faith, Nazari Ismaili Shiism. Historian James Watterson posits that Muhammad's trepidation may have had something to do with a ceasefire with Sultan Sanjar, which we covered last week. He didn't want the assassins to spread their teachings too far and invite backlash, or even another siege on Alamut that could lead to a famine. But the order of assassins didn't fear famine or their own mortality. They were trained to die. They welcomed it. Muhammad's hesitation incited unrest in the organization. Soon, his own son, Hassan II, gave him trouble. Hassan II was named, of course, after the order's first leader. And like his namesake, Hassan II was a fanatic. He devoured the original writings and teachings of the order. It wasn't long before he started rebelling against Ismaili tradition, drinking wine and disrespecting his elders. In his eyes, they didn't deserve respect. They'd grown weak. Hassan II wasn't alone in his discontent. In fact, he was able to convince a number of men within the order that he was the Mahdi. The Mahdi, also known as the Qayyim, or hidden Imam, was the Redeemer. The Mahdi's return would signal an age of spiritual knowledge, and the Mahdi would cast evil out of the world. If nothing else, Hassan II was charismatic and charming. With each passing day, he gained more fedais to his cause. They saw Hassan II as the leader they had long desired. Meanwhile, Hassan II's father, Muhammad, felt that his son was a threat. To flex his power, Muhammad did something unexpected. He ordered 500 of Hassan II's followers to gather in the courtyard of Alamut. He executed half and tied their corpses to the other half. The 250 men who kept their lives were banished from Alamut, carrying the slaughtered on their backs. Hassan II understood his father's message. He retreated from his more fanatical teachings and bided his time until he could become head of the order. Despite the internal struggle, Muhammad named Hassan II his successor. By 1162, the 35-year-old was the formal leader of the Order of Assassins. Until 1164, it was business as usual, at least as far as the records show. But then, on August 8th, in the middle of Ramadan, everything changed. The assassins had been told that an important proclamation was going to be made. No one knew what Hassan II was going to announce, so they eagerly awaited their Grand Master's arrival. Then, all eyes turned towards the front entrance of Alamut Castle. Hassan II, dressed in a white robe, wearing a white turban, and wielding a sword, walked up to the pulpit. The crowd fell silent. With a deep breath, Hassan II announced that the end of days was upon them. It was the time of Kiyama, the resurrection. 
life on Earth would soon be swallowed by sin, and the followers of Nizari Ismailism would be the only ones to enter paradise. Everyone else would be condemned to eternal hell. He continued, Sharia law, the religious rules that came directly from the Prophet Muhammad, was now nullified. All Nizaris throughout the Middle East should build an internal relationship with Allah. This meant no more outward shows of devotion, like praying five times a day in the direction of Mecca. Hassan II went on to claim that he was the Qayyim, the bringer of the resurrection. According to James Wasserman's book, The Templars and the Assassins, Islamic doctrine generally holds that Muhammad is the last of six prophets. The first were Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, each with increasing power and authority. The final prophet in Shia tradition was the Qayyim. By declaring himself Qayyim, Hassan II said he was above the prophet Muhammad. It was blasphemous. After his announcement, Hassan II held the Festival of the Resurrection. Since the end of days was upon them, there was no need to continue Ramadan. Ramadan is meant to be a month of fasting, charity, and prayer, but Hassan II turned it into celebration, the resurrection of joy, the Qiyamah. Debauchery filled the halls of Castle Alamut. Harps played loudly for all to hear, and the assassins, who for decades had been forbidden to drink wine, now drowned in it. Any Nizari who failed to follow Hassan II's directive, called the New Dispensation, was publicly chastised, or worse, stoned to death. At least, that's one account. However, historian James Watterson notes that much of this story comes from Sunni chroniclers. For all intents and purposes, the Sunnis were the enemies of the order, men who had motivation to spread propaganda against them. That being said, most Nizari Ismaili Shiites enthusiastically accepted the message of the Qiyamah and Hassan II as Qaim. They were already seen as fanatics throughout the Muslim world. Hassan II's declaration was just one step further. But the message wasn't only intended for followers of Nizari Ismailism living in Persia. Hassan II wanted to reach all who followed the sect in the Levant and Palestine. With that in mind, Hassan II sent out missionaries to all the communities beyond Persia to help spread the word. One of the most difficult missions was the one to Syria, a region embroiled in turmoil due to the ongoing Crusades. Nizari Ismaili Shiism barely had a toehold in the area now, and Hassan II's proclamation was only going to make it harder to win over converts. Luckily for him, one of his closest disciples, a man he'd befriended during their training, was more than prepared to spread his message. That disciple's name was Rashid al-Din Sinan. With Sinan leading the charge, the Syrian order of assassins would become legendary. Not only would they strike fear in the Holy Land, but they'd extend their power to Western Europe over 2,000 miles away. Coming up, Rashid al-Din Sinan casts a spell over the assassins. Now back to the story. In 1164, the Order of the Assassins' Grand Master, Hassan II, made a controversial declaration. 
he proclaimed that the end of days was near and that he was the foretold Kaim, the one to bring the resurrection. In Persia, the announcement was met with enthusiasm among his followers, the Nizari Ismaili Shiites. But Hassan II needed to spread his message beyond Persia, so he sent his disciple Rashid al-Din Sinan to Syria. Since the days of Hassani Sabah, the Order of Assassins had attempted to gain influence in Syria with middling success. For about 20 years, the assassins had held control in the city of Aleppo, but they were eventually expelled by the Seljuks. That didn't stop the order from fighting to regain their lost ground. Beginning in 1125, the assassins had slowly acquired castles throughout the mountain regions, avoiding major cities. Throughout the 1140s, during Grand Master Muhammad's reign as leader, the Syrian assassins actually allied themselves with the Knights Hospitallers, a Catholic military order. The Hospitallers may sound familiar. We covered them previously in our episodes on the Knights Templar. But peace between the assassins and the Hospitallers didn't last for long. At 1152, 10 years before Hassan II took power, Count Raymond II of Tripoli became the first Christian to fall to an assassin's dagger. His death shocked Christendom. Regicide was uncommon in Western Europe. In response, the Christian Knights Templar massacred the Nizari Ismaili Shiites in Syria. The order wasn't prepared to defend themselves. To stop the killings, the Syrian assassins were forced to pay the Templars an annual tribute. The Syrian assassins seemed like they were on the verge of collapse once more. That is, until the early 1160s, when Hassan II sent his disciple, 30-year-old Rashid al-Din Sinan, to Castle Masyath in Syria. He was supposed to bring stability back to the order and to spread the message of the coming Kiyama. Legend has it that when Rashid al-Din Sinan arrived at Masyaf Castle, he rode into the courtyard on a white donkey, which according to historian James Watterson was historically the color of resistance for all Shiites. The message was clear. Sinan was going to make sure the assassins flourished in the Sunni region. But instead of resisting right away, Sinan sought to amass a loyal following. He didn't think the Syrian leader of the order would appreciate his reform efforts. So rather than challenge him directly, Sinan waited for him to make a misstep or die. Meanwhile, back in Alamut, a growing sect of assassins were growing wary of Hassan II's blasphemous declarations. This new conservative cabal turned to Hassan II's brother-in-law, believed to be named Hassan bin Namur, to lead a coup. In January 1166, four years into Hassan II's leadership, Namur approached. When the time was right and Hassan II wasn't looking, Namur revealed his dagger and stabbed Hassan II repeatedly, killing him instantly. The brutal murder was supposed to bring a sense of normalcy back to the Order of Assassins. Instead, Hassan II's son, Muhammad II, squashed the insurrection and executed his uncle for murder. And under Muhammad II's leadership, he announced that Kiyama was to continue, even in Syria. After seven long years, the Syrian leader died, and it was time for Sinan to make his move. He produced a secret letter from the deceased Hassan II in 1169. It named Sinan as his successor. 
he was now officially the head of the Syrian assassins. But Sinan's takeover of the Syrian assassins created a split within the order as a whole. Sinan had believed in Hassan II and his Qiyama doctrine, but he didn't have the same faith in Hassan II's son, Muhammad II. Therefore, the Syrian assassins under Rashid al-Din Sinan cut ties with Castle Alamut. Muhammad II was enraged by the challenge to his authority. Sinan's disobedience and blasphemy had to be stopped, so Muhammad II dispatched men to eliminate him. Throughout the 1170s, assassin after assassin was sent to murder Sinan. But according to legend, Sinan and his men either killed them first or converted them to his ranks. Apparently, Sinan was incredibly convincing. He was said to be the embodiment of the order's founder, Hassani Sabah, as charismatic, as intelligent, and as hypnotic. Rumors circulated that he may have even had supernatural powers. It wasn't long before he took on a mythical persona. He was believed to be psychic, with the ability to read people's thoughts and speak to animals. According to one account, Sinan once began talking to a horse. When he finished, the horse dropped to the ground, dead. He then turned to the crowd of onlookers and proclaimed that the horse was actually a reincarnated princess. With the help of Allah, he'd freed the princess from its cruel master. It's likely that Sinan played into these rumors. He may have even used some of Hassani Sabah's tactics to encourage fanaticism and devotion amongst his followers, including the famous Garden of Paradise. If you recall from last week, the Garden of Paradise was a parlor trick Hassan used on his fidai. Using a garden, theatrics, women, and drugs, he convinced his men that they were given a glimpse of paradise. Then he'd tell them that if they died for the Order's cause, they would once again be granted access. In addition to the Garden of Paradise charade, Sinan was said to have more tricks to convince his followers of his powers. While there are a couple of different iterations of the tale, the gist of it goes like this. Sinan would bring a group of his fidai into a chamber. In the middle of the floor, a decapitated head waited for them. Then, to the shock and horror of the fidai, it spoke. It told them what paradise looked like, the trees, the milk and honey, and the beautiful maidens. When the head was finished, the fidai left the chamber in awe of Sinan's mystical powers and the promise of paradise. In reality, the talking head was actually just a man buried in a small hole up to his neck. Once the fidai were gone from the chamber... Sinan actually decapitated the man, as proof that the head had been severed the whole time. The theatrics worked. With Sinan in charge, the Order of Assassins were once again feared in the Holy Land, particularly amongst Christians. To them, the fanatical allegiance of the Order was unimaginable. And that devotion was never more on display than when Sinan had his assassins perform ritual death drops. With a simple nod from Sinan, assassins would jump off fortress towers or cliffs. Such demonstrations were allegedly put on as a show of strength, a clear sign that the Fidai were willing to die for Sinan at any moment for any reason. Their commitment was their strength. 
And yet, according to historians, there's no actual proof that any such demonstrations ever occurred. The most famous account of the death drops and many legends surrounding the order actually comes from Marco Polo. Polo's visit to the Holy Land occurred in the 1270s, almost 20 years after the order's eventual collapse. Many of the tales that Polo heard had been passed down through generations of Europeans who'd visited the area prior to his arrival. Famous crusader chroniclers like William of Tyre, the Archbishop of Tyre from 1175 to 1186, and Jacques de Vitry, who was Bishop of Acre from 1216 to 1228. William Jacques and other European historians often embellished their stories. Not to mention their sources were often Sunni Muslims, men and women intentionally spreading anti-assassin propaganda. Historian Farhad Daftari notes, the death drop legend likely stems from the belief that the assassins drugged themselves. They were in such a state of intoxication that they plunged to their own deaths. But as we discussed last week, there's almost no evidence to suggest drug use amongst the order at all. Daftari notes that the death drop legends have also been attributed to Hassani Sabah's son. In fact, almost all of the legends regarding Sinan in Syria have been conflated with stories of Hassani Sabah in Alamut, and vice versa. So it's difficult to assess the truth behind the claims. Which assassin legend originated with Hassan in the 1090s, and which originated with Sinan in the 1170s? It's sort of like a medieval game of telephone. That being said, there's no question that Rashid al-Din Sinan reignited the assassin's fearsome reputation. And not long after his reign began, he found himself at war with one of Islam's most fearsome generals, Salah Hadin Yusuf. Better known as Saladin, the man who reclaimed Jerusalem for the Muslims. But his victory in the Crusades didn't earn him many allies amongst his own people. Saladin's controversial life made him and the assassins into some of the most hated and feared men in the world. Coming up, the Syrian assassins go to war with Sunni Muslims and Christian crusaders. Now, back to the story. In 1169, Rashid al-Din Sinan became the leader of the Syrian assassins and broke ties with the Persians in Alamut. Channeling the order's founder, Hassan Sabah, he created a cult of personality that led to a growing, loyal following. In the process, he brought the order back to prominence in Syria, a once volatile region. But as Sinan secured his own power, a powerful Sunni leader was doing the same. Salah Din Yusuf, better known to history as Saladin. In 1171, Saladin, a general for the Zanqid dynasty, entered Cairo and declared the Fatimid Caliphate over. The Zanqids were proxies for the Seljuks, who ruled over present-day northern Iraq and parts of Syria. In place of the Fatimid, Saladin created the new Ayyubid dynasty, named after his father, Nejm Adin Ayyub. With the snap of a finger, the first and only Ismaili Caliphate was over. For three years, Saladin ruled over the region as vizier and as a proxy to the Zanqids. But in 1174, with the death of the Zanqid Amir, Saladin seized the moment to declare himself Sultan of Egypt. 
His mission was to unify all of the Sunnis under the Ayyubid dynasty and expel the Christians from the Holy Land. One by one, the cities and regions that had fractured under Fatimid or Seljuk rule fell to Saladin's will. Many of the cities, like Damascus, even willingly pledged their loyalty to the new sultan. But residents of Aleppo, Syria, weren't so willing. Their allegiances were still with the Sunni Zanqi dynasty, and so Saladin turned to the Order of Assassins for help. But he didn't get it. Rashid al-Din Sinan and the assassins hated the Zanqids, but Saladin was the larger threat. So the Order and the Zanqids joined forces. As they say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. While the Zanqids faced Saladin in open combat, the assassins tried their own proven tactics. In October 1174, Saladin was on his way from Damascus to Aleppo when a group of assassins rushed into his tent. The first was immediately decapitated by one of Saladin's guards, but more made their way inside to finish what the first couldn't, to kill Saladin. Unfortunately, a host of Saladin's men had come to his aid. The assassins were outnumbered. One by one, they were put to death. Not to be deterred, Sinan sent more of his Hadai to end Saladin's life. In May 1176, Saladin went to rest alone in his tent. An assassin, disguised as one of Saladin's bodyguards, rushed in and attacked. But his dagger didn't meet flesh. Instead, it came into contact with the chainmail protecting Saladin's neck. Saladin fought back, overpowering the assassin long enough to allow his men to kill the intruder. But in the midst of the chaos, a second assassin rushed into the tent, hoping to finish off the Sultan. According to historian James Watterson, the two assassins were literally hacked to pieces. Saladin survived, but the attempt showed Saladin that Sinan and his assassins were more than just a thorn in his side. What they lacked in strength and numbers, they made up for in stealth and fearlessness. In August, Saladin launched a retaliatory attack on Castle Masyaf, a siege around the assassin's stronghold. It's unclear exactly how long the siege lasted, but there are two stories as to how it ended. Both accounts come from Sinan's personal biographer, Kamal al-Din. The first version is that Sinan sent threatening letters to Saladin. The letters implied that Sinan had no fear of death, but promised that Saladin would be killed by a man in his own ranks. In other words, Sinan had moles in Saladin's court. Fearing for his life, Saladin withdrew his siege. In the second version, Sinan sent ambassadors to Saladin's camp to negotiate a truce. Paranoid that they would try to kill him, Saladin added extra guards to his tent, including a couple of Turkish Mamluks or enslaved soldiers. When the assassin ambassadors finally arrived, they demanded privacy to deliver their message. Saladin ordered everyone to leave, except two of the Turkish Mamluks. When the ambassadors asked Saladin why the Mamluks stayed, Saladin replied, I regard these two as my own sons, and they and I are as one. One of the ambassadors smiled and turned to the Mamluk guards. He asked them, If I order you, in the name of my master, to kill this sultan, would you do so? 
To Saladin's shock and horror, the Mamluks drew their swords and responded, Command us as you wish. Whatever the story, Saladin was paranoid that an assassin could be anywhere. He decided it was smarter not to provoke the order. So he packed up his troops and left Masyaf Castle. The war between the Order of Assassins and Saladin had come to an end. Sinan never ordered another assassination against Saladin again. Instead, the two seemingly joined forces. They set their sights on another enemy. The Christian Crusaders. But the assassins didn't immediately engage the Crusaders in combat. They patiently waited for Saladin and his massive army to do most of the work for them. If their newest ally and former enemy happened to lose men along the way, all the better. In fact, the assassins likely didn't actually fight alongside Saladin until the Battle of Hatin in July 1187, over a decade after they supposedly made peace. In a strategic blunder, the Crusaders had moved the majority of their forces away from Jerusalem and searched for Saladin in the desert. There, they succumbed to thirst. With each passing day, they grew weaker. When they were at their lowest, Saladin surrounded them at the horns of Hatin. The Crusaders didn't stand a chance. There isn't definitive proof that the assassins were present at Hatin, but it isn't hard to imagine. The Order still paid tribute to the Knights Templar. Defeating them in battle would mean killing their debtors, which would have been reason enough for Rashid al-Din Sinan and his men to show up in droves. After the Battle of Hatin, Jerusalem fell to Saladin, which led to the Third Crusade. Beginning in 1189, Christians from Europe flocked to the Holy Land to once again reclaim what they'd lost. The influx threatened the Order's ability to carry out their mission of expansion and conversion. They were outnumbered everywhere they went. By 1192, the Crusaders had reclaimed quite a bit of land for the Kingdom of Jerusalem. By April, they only had to conquer Jerusalem itself. Marquis Conrad of Montferrat, an Italian who'd helped defend the Christian city of Tyre, was appointed the new king of Jerusalem. As soon as the city was officially taken, Conrad would be crowned. Unfortunately, his coronation would never come. On April 28th, Conrad was returning from lunch with a bishop when two monks approached him. The men suddenly brandished daggers from their robes and stabbed Conrad in the heart repeatedly. The assassins were soon captured, but before they were put to death, they confessed that they'd been sent by their master, Rashid al-Din Sinan. But since the brutal killing, alternative theories have arisen as to who actually ordered the assassination. It could have been the British King Richard the Lionheart, who jealously orchestrated the assassination when he wasn't named King of Jerusalem himself. But the most prominent theory remains that Sinan ordered the death, and his motivation was revenge. Conrad had previously seized a cargo ship with goods belonging to the assassins. He'd then executed the entire crew, men with ties to Sinan and the Order. But regardless of who ordered the assassination, the death of Conrad of Montfrat changed the course of history. In response to his murder, peace was made between the Christians and the Muslims, effectively ending the Third Crusade. Jerusalem remained under Muslim control. 
Because of this, most historians believe that Conrad of Montferrat was Rashid al-Din Sinan's final assassination. The following year, Conrad's successor, Henry II of Champagne, allegedly visited Sinan at Masyaf Castle to broker a truce. Sinan allegedly staged an assassin death drop to dissuade Henry II from retaliating for Conrad's murder. Legend has it the demonstration worked. Not long after, Sinan died of unknown causes. However, some believe that he went into hiding via occultation. That means rather than entering paradise or hell, his body and spirit simply vanished. To wait until it was time to return. Many Nazari Ismailis still await Sinan's second coming. In the meanwhile, Sinan's followers needed a leader to guide them in his absence. After his death in 1193, the Syrian assassins reunited with those in Persia, who were still under the control of Muhammad II. Their former disagreements didn't seem so important now that Sinan was no longer around. But the merged order of assassins could never return to its former glory. No other leader could capture the enthusiasm that Hassani Sabah or Rashid al-Din Sinan had ignited within the organization. For the next 50 years, a series of inept leaders weakened their position in Persia and Syria. Even after the collapse of the Seljuk Empire in 1194, the assassins were unable to capitalize on the resulting power vacuum. Instead, new Sunni caliphates or dynasties took control of the region, leaving the waning assassins on the sidelines once more. For the Order of Assassins, death arrived on two fronts. The first, the Mongol Empire from the east. After three years of slowly making their way through Persia, the Mongols reached the steps of Alamut Castle. Unlike past sieges, the Mongols managed to make it inside. And when they did, in December 1256, they destroyed everything. They burnt the assassins' libraries and demolished their gardens. They wanted to erase the order from history. And in the process, they brought the once great fortress to ruins. Meanwhile, the Syrian assassins managed to hold on a while longer until the rise of the Mamluk Sultanate in the 1250s. In September 1260, the Mamluks expelled the Mongols from Syria and gained control of the region. The Syrian assassins survived by paying the Mamluks tribute for the next 11 years. In 1271, the Mamluk leader learned of an assassination plot against him by the Syrian assassins. And so, he crushed them. In the span of two years, he captured every assassin fortress in the region, including their last stronghold, Masyaf. The Order of Assassins was officially no more. But unlike the Mongols, the Mamluks weren't interested in erasing them from history. In fact, the Mongols found a new use for their captives. If they needed someone dead, they paid a former assassin to do the work for them. From 1090 to 1273, the Order of Assassins' reign brought fear to the lands they inhabited. In the process, they turned assassination into an art form. Legends about the Order have fascinated Westerners ever since Crusaders brought their stories of ferocity back with them. Claims of a fantastical Garden of Paradise ritual, suicidal death drops, and drug-induced mind control methods shocked the world. 
To most, the Order of Assassins was a fanatical religious group led by a cult leader, a fringe movement within the Muslim community. To others, they were an elite group of holy warriors. Regardless, for nearly 200 years, these specially trained killers spread fear throughout the Holy Land and Persia. The order is gone today, but their legacy lives on. Their tactics have been imitated and replicated for centuries. Though we may never know the truth of what actually went on inside the walls of Alamut Castle, one thing is undeniably true. The Order of Assassins was one of history's deadliest secret societies. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.